Okay, suppose that we were to find a person, uh, uh, an intelligent person, but they had never had any exposure whatsoever to religion, church, theology, God. They had no preconceived notions or ideas, no background, nothing. They were a blank slate as far as God goes, okay? If we could find a person like that and we were to expose them to John 1, verse 1. And if all they knew about God, they had to extract out of John 1, verse 1, what would they reasonably deduce about God? So check it out. Here it is. Look at John 1, 1. Can you imagine having eyes that fresh that if you could approach that scripture like this person that we have in mind? And here it is, John 1, 1. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. Now for that person, what would they think? What reasonable you know, initial conclusions would they come to about who God is or, or what God is? What do you think? In the beginning, the word already existed the word was with God and the word was God. You know what I think they would conclude? I think what they would say is this, that God, it must be in his nature to communicate. Because <laughs> it's talking about word, word, in the word. What's a word, right? What an what interesting way they talk about God. And so I think they would conclude it must be in the nature of God to communicate that God is not silent, that God uses words, that God is a communicator, that he communicates to his creation. And I think they would come to the conclusion, God must be relational. That if God uses words, if God is a word, if God seeks to communicate, God must desire relationship. He must desire to interact with us. And you know what? That person would be right. <laughs> Those basic conclusions from John 1.1, they'd be dead on. That this God is not silent. That it is in the nature of God to communicate. And that this God is relational and wants a relationship with us. This word, word, in the Greek is the word logos. Logos it's translated in the English word. And we're going to look at the first five verses in the Gospel of John today. And the word logos appears four times in these first five verses. And we all know what a word is, right? A word is an idea expressed through a combination of letters or sounds. It's an idea expressed through a combination of letters or sounds. For instance, if we were to throw up on the screen the word dog, D-O-G, those letters in that order, everyone would understand. Everybody would know. Now, we all might envision like a different size dog or a different breed of dog, but that word communicates a reality, communicates an idea, D-O-G, dog. We don't have to have it in print. I can just say it. And that sound, that that, that combination of sounds, d, uh, 
G, right? Dog. You know what I'm talking about. That's what a word does. A word communicates. Now, what's interesting is that when John wrote these words in the first century, the word logos was real common in Greek culture. It was used in Greek philosophy, especially among the Stoics. And it was a very abstract philosophical principle, but to them, logos meant this. It was the idea of the controlling reason of the universe or the all-pervasive mind which rules and gives meaning. It's the idea of the ultimate reason or ultimate intelligence, a very abstract philosophical thought. But that's what the word logos would bring to mind for them. Now, that was Greek culture. In Jewish culture, from the Old Testament, the word word was a concept that communicated God's effectiveness or God's reason or God's being powerful and God being personal. Uh, Let me give you an example. Check out Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. They would connect with this and look at the word word here. It says, the rain and snow come down from heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my, here it is, It is the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and I will prosper and it will prosper everywhere I send it. And so what I love is that John is like a master of contextualizing here. And he takes the common like secular understanding of the word logos right? The ultimate philosophical idea of ultimate intelligence or reason. And he takes the Jewish religious idea of a personal God who is effective and interactive with his creation. And he takes these and melds them together and says, Jesus is it. That Jesus is the ultimate expression of God, that he is the all-pervasive mind, that he is the supreme intelligence of the universe. We know this because later on in the chapter, in verse 14, John specifically says the word became flesh. It's obvious that the word being referred to here is in fact Jesus Christ. So here's what we're doing. I'm excited about this. Today we have a historical date right here right now, okay? Because today we are beginning a 47-week study in the Gospel of John, okay? Now, does that sound daunting to you? I hope not. It's going to be awesome, okay? I think it's going to be fantastic. But uh, had this very specific leading, we're going to spend 47 weeks. Now, we're going to take a brief break in the summer for four, maybe eight weeks, and then we'll have another Advent related series next December. But other than that, we're going to be in the Gospel of John finishing up a little over a year from now, okay? So it's awesome you're here. It's awesome you're watching online because you're going to be able to say a year from now, I was there when it first got started, okay? (laughs) And people are going to look at you and say, you don't even look that old. And you're like, yep, I was there then, okay? So it's good you are here now because you are on the ground floor of what's going to be a fantastic teaching series in the Gospel of John. But it's going to take us 47 sermons to get through it. This is sermon numero uno, all right? So 
Here's what we're going to do. In beginning to study the gospel of John, I want to take this first Sunday to lay some groundwork. I want to give us some like foundational knowledge about the gospel of John. I think that's helpful to bring greater meaning to the coming stories and, and teachings that we're going to be looking at. So let's take time on this first Sunday to do some introductory work on the gospel of John. So let's start out with the author. Who is the author of the Gospel of John. And obviously, this chronicle was written by John. Now, it's, the author's unnamed. As you read through the book, it never specifically says who the author is, but over the centuries, it's been titled traditionally to be the Gospel of John. Now, what do we know about John? We know quite a bit about John. John was one of the sons of Zebedee. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee was a fisherman. James and John were fishermen. And when they were called to follow Christ, James and John got out of the boat, left their father Zebedee behind, and became devoted followers of Jesus. So John had a brother named James. And interestingly enough, did you know that Jesus gave James and John a nickname? These two brothers. He called them the sons of thunder. And the reason why I called them the sons of thunder is one day they were walking along Jesus and his disciples and there was this group doing something that they didn't like or whatever. And, and uh, James and John said to Jesus, hey Jesus, should we call fire down from heaven and consume those people? And Jesus was like, you guys got to relax. I mean, you guys are really, really high strung. But he said as a result, I'm going to call you guys the sons of thunder. So it's the idea that there were personalities. I think they were very aggressive. They were very like intense. They might have even had anger issues. But John was called by Jesus a son of thunder. Pretty interesting. Now, there's a lot of internal evidence in the book that John was the author. I want to go through this real quick, but some internal evidence in the book pointing to the fact that the Apostle John was indeed the author. First of all, it had to be an eyewitness. John is separate from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospels. It doesn't have the same format, and it includes a lot of things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't record. And, and so it's obvious that the detail given in this account of the life of Christ, it had to be an eyewitness. It absolutely had to be an eyewitness. And in fact, the writer says parenthetically in chapter 19, verse 35, he said, this report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. And so an eyewitness is the author of this account. Second piece of, of evidence is this, that the author is identified as the disciple Jesus loved. There's a couple of different times that phrase happens, the disciple Jesus loved. Now, if you've read the New Testament before or read the Gospels, you might know this, that Jesus had a circle of 12, 12 men that he poured his life into, the original disciples, and they were very close-lit close-knit group, and they lived together for like three years. They were with each other pretty much daily. But within that 12, he had an inner circle of three, and the inner circle of three that he was even closer to and spent more time with was Peter, James, and John. Well, by the writing of this gospel, James was already martyred. He was already dead. It couldn't have been Peter because it specifically says that Peter was with 
the disciple whom Jesus loved. So the author had to be the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's always been identified as John. Now, interestingly, uh, John, at the time he was following Christ, most Bible scholars believe he was the youngest of all 12 of the disciples. And their best guess is John, at the time of the gospel accounts, was probably just 14, 15 years old. He was very young when he first started following Christ. Christ. And so a third piece of evidence is the fact that it needed to be one of the 12 apostles. And so by deductive reasoning of who couldn't have written it for various reasons, and the fact that it had to be one of the 12 in order to have authority in writing the account, it was one of the 12. John was definitely one of the 12. And then lastly, the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation have a number of similarities. And of course, John wrote the book of Revelation. And so writing the Gospel of John, writing the book of Revelation, you study them side by side and stylistically they point to it's the same person doing the writing. And so all of this supports the traditional view of the church that John is the author. Now, there's external evidence outside the Bible that also points to John as the author. I just wanted to give you one example, and I kind of geeked out on, on this this week. I thought it was cool, and, and I just wanted to briefly share it with you. I wanted to point to the witness of a guy named Irenaeus. Irenaeus died in the year 200 AD. He was a bishop, a Greek bishop. He died in the year 200 AD, but Irenaeus claimed that John wrote the fourth gospel. And he said he learned about this from a dude named Polycarp. Now, Polycarp died in about the year 155 AD. He was a bishop of Smyrna. And he said that Polycarp learned this from John himself. I think this is mind-blowing. But Polycarp was mentored, was discipled by John himself. And then Polycarp, later in life, met Irenaeus and said, oh yeah, I knew John. John discipled me and John told, and, and, and John told me that he wrote this book. And so Irenaeus gave evidence that, yeah, this is indeed the writings of the apostle John. Now, the date of the writing. Bible scholars give it a window. Don't know an exact time, but they do know it was sometime between 70 AD and 100 AD. It was after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was 70 AD, but it was obviously before John died, and John died in about 100 AD. So it was sometime in that frame that it was written. Uh, trivia fact about John is that he was the only disciple who died a natural death, that every other disciple died as a martyr because of their faith. Only John died of old age, died of natural causes, and that was in the year 100. So here's the purpose. Why John bothered to write this eyewitness account? The purpose, the theme of the book is to believe. And that's why we've titled this series, Believe, because that's the purpose of the gospel, to believe in Christ for eternal life. Now, folks, I'm not speculating on what the purpose of the gospel of John is. The author explicitly wrote why he bothered to write the book. It's in John 20, verse 30 and 31. Look what John 20, verse 30 and 31 says. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written, why? 
so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. And so the verb believe is used about a hundred times in the Gospel of John. And oftentimes it uses numerous symbols and synonyms which mean believe. Let me give you some examples. The word receive, but as many as receive him, to them he give the right to become child of God. To know Christ is the idea of believing. To come to him is the idea of believing. To see him for who he is is the idea of believing. Jesus said, if you're going to come at to me, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. Obviously, he was speaking metaphorically, but it was the idea of fully receiving me, of believing in me. And so that's the obvious uh, theme of the book. It's the most extensive testimony, really, in the New Testament that Jesus is the, the divine Son of God and the promised Messiah. So here's what we're going to do. The first 18 verses of the gospel are the prologue for the book. They give a frame of reference and the main components for the story that's to follow. And if the first 18 verses are the prologue to the book, the first five verses are like the prologue to the prologue, okay? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're looking at the prologue to the prologue, which sets the stage for everything we're going to study in the next 47 weeks. And so I would invite you now to please stand at the reading of God's word. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this reliable eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Father, we thank you that it's been preserved through the centuries, so now we can sit down and read it, and study it, and meditate on it. And Father, we pray that it would do its work in our lives, that we might be provoked to believe, that we might be provoked to believe more, that our faith would run deeper, our trust would grow stronger, that God, we would see Jesus for who he is, and as a result, our lives would be given to him. Father, we pray for today and for the weeks that come, that you would have your way in our church and in our lives as we learn about Jesus. Father, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. There's a lot of good theology in these first five verses to extract. And so I want to use our time, our remaining time, to look at six basic fundamental truths about Jesus Christ, okay, that we get from these first five verses. Truth number one is this. Jesus has always existed. Jesus has always existed. In the beginning, the word already existed. Now you see, to the first century reader, especially, I mean, to the first century listener, especially a Jew, they would know exactly what that's referring to because that takes you back where? In the beginning. Where do you read in the beginning? 
Genesis 1.1, the very first words of the Torah, the very first words of scripture, in the beginning. And so John says, in the beginning, yeah, back then, when the world was first created, the word already existed. The theological term for that is the pre-existence of Christ. And it's the idea that Jesus never had a beginning. That even before creation, before there was space, before there was time, before there was any created thing, he already was. That as God, he never had a beginning. Now that's a mind-blowing concept for us, right? Because when we think of like being eternal, we think like in the future, like never dying, always existing, moving forward. But take it backwards on the timeline. What about not only never dying, but what about never being born? Never starting out that you've always existed. My friends, that's mind-blowing. And we can't possibly wrap our finite, puny minds around that. That's one of the mysteries of the faith. But of course, God's big, right? And we shouldn't be able to understand all the things of God. And so truth about Jesus is that he's always existed. So back a few weeks ago when we were celebrating Christmas and thinking of the child born in a stable in Bethlehem, that was his incarnation. That was him becoming a human being. That wasn't the beginning of his existence because he's always existed. Truth number two is this. Jesus has always been in relationship with God the Father. It says the word was with God. The word was with God. And so you see there's two entities here. It says the word was with God. So there was God, but there was somebody with him. It was the word. Well, you see, that concept would really put a strain on Jewish theology, wouldn't it? Because Jewish theology, their primary um, credo was one God, right? They were monotheistic. They believed in one God. All the other cultures and religions around them believed in multiple gods. They stood alone as believing in one God. So now you're saying the word existed before the beginning of time and was with God. Well, you see, it's the first glimpse. It's, it's our first taste of, again, one of the mysteries of the Christian faith, the idea of the Holy Trinity or the triune God, our belief that there is one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, a concept that we can't fully understand by any means, but scripture makes it clear that, that God, that the word was with God in fellowship with him and separate from him. And later on in the gospel, Jesus does teaching on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit being God. And so we see um, this mystery of the faith, but Jesus has always been in relationship with God the Father. Third truth about Jesus is Jesus is God. The word was God. Now, many cults and many false religions translate this verse, the end of verse one, and they translate it by messing around with the Greek and they, they end up trying to say, and the word was a God. Instead of the word was God, they translate it, the word was a God. One of many, somebody who developed into a God over time. 
you know, God with a small g kind of thing. But that's not what it's saying. It's saying that Jesus is God. It's in his very nature to have all the attributes of God. And it's this proclamation, this truth about himself that ultimately got Jesus killed. What ultimately caused so much controversy and got people so angry and made the religious leaders so opposed to Jesus was his claim to be God. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, me and the Father are one. Well, that was blasphemy. People didn't like that. And it was that clinging to that claim that ultimately got Jesus killed. But the truth is, by very nature, he was God. Fourth truth about Jesus is this, that Jesus is the agent of all creation. God the Father, as creator, used his son as an agent of creation, delegated the power of creation to him, and everything created came through Jesus. That everything we see, everything in our created world has the thumbprint of Christ upon it. For something to be a creator, especially in scripture, if if somebody has the power of creation, it speaks of dominion, it speaks of authority, it speaks of power, obviously it speaks of creativity. And all those attributes are ascribed to Christ. All dominion, all power, all authority, the perfect creator. And John makes clear that he was the agent of all creation. Fifth truth about Jesus is found in verse 4, and that is Jesus brings truth to everyone. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Now, in John's day, light was a metaphor. It had meaning beyond like physical light, but it was the idea, depending on who you were talking to, that light stood for wisdom, or light stood for uh, the Mosaic law, or light stood for enlightenment through philosophy, or living a simple lifestyle. And uh, John proclaims that Jesus is the supreme light, that any of these meanings is ultimately true in Jesus, that he was the eternal universal light, that he brought truth to everyone. We've experienced that, haven't we, for those of us who've come to Christ, that you know you've discovered truth, truth about yourself, truth about our world, truth about what God is like, that Jesus brings truth to our lives. And then lastly, number six, the final truth about the word here is that Jesus causes controversy. He always has, he always will. Jesus is controversial nowadays, Jesus was controversial back then. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it, which means the darkness was trying to extinguish it. Why was the darkness trying to extinguish it? Well, you see, we know by observation, we probably know from our own stories, we know from the testimony of Scripture that people hate light, that the darkness hates light. And when we're exposed in our sin, when we're exposed for our wrong ideas about God and our hatefulness and our selfishness, that darkness hates light and rebels against it and tries to snuff out the light. And you see, that's what happened to Jesus. That 
the people of his day sought to extinguish him and they nailed him to a cross and they put him in a tomb and they thought they had extinguished the light. He caused a lot of controversy. Now, they didn't extinguish, didn't they? They didn't extinguish him at all. But they tried to. But it's a reminder to us that the world cannot comprehend Christ, nor can they overcome him. That they killed him, they tried to extinguish the light, but it didn't work. But the fact that they even tried speaks of hostility and controversy. And it's going to be interesting, but in the coming weeks as we study the Gospel of John, this is what you're going to find. That when he first went public in ministry, his ministry and his life was met with awe and curiosity and even admiration, but real quickly, it developed into suspicion and false rumors and slander that developed into conniving and scheming and ultimately rage and violence. And because that's what Jesus would do. Either people step into the light and embrace it, or they hate the light. There's really not much middle ground. And Jesus is doing that still today in our world. He does that still today within even people's families, for those who come to Christ and those who refuse, that Jesus causes controversy. I want to challenge you that as we begin this teaching series to approach Jesus with fresh eyes as best as you can, Pretend like you're reading this book for the first time and allow God's word to speak directly to you with no preconceived notions or ideas. And then what might you conclude if you could approach this with fresh eyes? My prayer for you, my prayer for our church is that as a result of our study in John, we would simply believe. We believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that what he did he did for us in seeking to give us eternal life. And so I hope, here's the challenge, in the next week or two, would you read the Gospel of John in preparation for this study? I think you could easily read through it in a week, two weeks, but if you could kind of make that a little project of your own off on the side, read through it so you get the panoramic view, because we're going to be going through it relatively slowly. It's going to take us 47 weeks. You can read through it in a week, two weeks, stops. So I want to encourage you to do that, and that'll be great preparation for um, what we're going to be learning in the coming months, okay? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and Father, we pray that the gospel of John, the seed of your word, would find fertile soil in our hearts, that Father, as a result of studying this eyewitness account, our lives would be changed, and that belief would be provoked in each one of our hearts. Lord, we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.